We open our Bibles again to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. We will consider some of its context and also its referent, which is Isaiah 6, 2-3. I won't be drawing us to Isaiah because I think we're pretty familiar with it, but I will be touching on it and reminding us that that's really behind and informing Revelation 4, verse 8. Excuse me. Um, before I read the scripture, uh, I wasn't going to share this. You know, a lot of stuff you try not to bring back out of the woodshed in your, in your work. But I was just really impressed. Um, and I, and I, I want to mention it to remember to recommend a book for you that I've only just begun. Uh, but I've heard, of it ref- I've heard it referenced many times as a really powerful book that people have been brought into the Reformed faith. That is the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty. Uh, uh, the book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. And uh, I picked it up and started to look at its first few chapters getting ready for this message, and we'll share a little of that with you. Um, He has uh, his messages you can watch on YouTube and Ligonier uh, if you'd like to watch his messages that are very similar to the book and the opening of it, The Holiness of God. Uh, It occurs to me to share, thinking about it, that the, uh, the man, Joshua, who is in prison nearby but looking to join membership and hopes to be out after a number of years, his fiance uh, will probably be visiting twice a year now with us as she visits him from New Zealand. As he shared more of his story with us and how the Lord brought him out of a horrendous lifestyle into holiness in Christ as a new creature in Christ, uh, he mentioned, well, first of all, it's interesting to note, or how he knows about us is he's been hearing our radio program in prison, and that's how he knew to reach out to us. He's been moved recently in our area and was looking for a church locally. So he listens to our radio program, Man's Chief End, uh, it's the Lord's Day through Friday, 5.30 a.m., But he shares about how he came to the Reformed faith after a lot of other things that proved to not be the true faith um, kind of deceivers, so to speak. Uh, He started hearing R.C. Sproul on the radio. This is earlier before us, uh, renewing your mind, I'm sure it was. And then after a while, he he saw someone walking in the, I think in the, um, the main yard, uh, with book in his hand, and it was this book, The Holiness of God. And he was interested. He says, what is that book? Can I borrow it? He, the guy asked him, are you reformed? He says, I don't know if I am. Can I get the book? <laughs> you know? And he borrowed the book, and he was just moved and blown away by it, came into Christ knowingly, savingly, in, in the sovereign grace, and uh, went on to read other books by R.C. Sproul. The other reason I want to bring it up before we begin is R.C. Sproul has his opening chapter that is exquisitely written. I mean, it's worth reading just because how well it's written. And in fact, I plan to share it with my eldest daughter who's majoring in, in writing. It's just so beautifully written. But he describes waking up at midnight just shaken by God, going into the chapel, opening the doors that made these big, long noises in the darkness at night, so different than during the day, during chapel services while at, while at college. And he had been profoundly hit in a philosophy class of hearing Augustine speaking about God as creator, simply speaking out of nothing things into being and his power and glory. And he was just so struck by God's awesomeness, the power to be able to do that. And uh, he was just reached by that and almost shaking in a way like Isaiah in chapter 6, our, our parallel scripture. And he started to really study the Lord and a lot of what brought... R.C. Sproul into salvation 
or a more informed and moved experience of God and his glory was the study of his holiness. It was the study of God's holiness that riveted him and reformed him. And, and you know the rest of the story, as it were. And he's now, he's now with the angels in heaven saying and hearing uh, with the other brethren what we'll hear is said by the angels in God's presence in heaven all the time, day and night. Let's go there now. Revelation 4, verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And it's that thing they're saying about God that we'll be focusing on tonight, the attribute of God's holiness. Notice it's said three times, and this is a unique thing that happens in scriptures. We'll look at that. We will look at who's saying it and the context and how similar it is to Isaiah. But what we're particularly looking at is the fact that God says he is holy, holy, holy. Three times it is emphasized, holy, holy, holy. Well, we enter into another study of God's attributes per the Westminster Shorter Catechism number four, as we had a number of weeks ago, his eternality, his glory, his being infinite, his being eternal, and how that all describes all the other attributes. So the the catechism says, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those three things that are only true of him in his being, wisdom, power, glory, holiness, justice, truth. And tonight we're going to look at the fact that God is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably holy. We're studying the attribute of God's holiness. And it could nearly be a synonym with glory. Remember, we were looking at this with the help of Robert Raymond in the Shorter Catechism, saying it really all could be summarized up in God is glory. Uh, gloriously holy we'll be thinking of tonight but you could almost argue that holiness is a synonym with God's glory and we'll see that in the parallel text with Isaiah Herman Hooksima points out the holiness of God may be considered to be the ethical virtue of God par excellence under which all the other ethical attributes may be subsumed and of which they are aspects he's saying basically similar to how we talked about God's glory Everything is understood under the category of holiness. God's thrice holiness is how we think and understand all his other attributes. Why do we sometimes cover our faces or put sunglasses on? You know, uh, while we were on our trip as elders, there happened to be a solar eclipse, partial solar eclipse, and Mr. Renner gave us these sunglasses, which until I looked towards the sun, I couldn't see nada. <laughs> you know, they were dark. But it was necessary for them to be so dark that you could look at the sun and not destroy your eyes. Because of how bright and strong it is to see that eclipse. We cover our faces when we approach and look at intense light, heat, energy, power, And so the angels do in God's presence. First, we think in Isaiah 6, 1 to 3, which is the reference, which is what's really being quoted and alluded to in our text tonight, Revelation 4, verse 8. It's a throne room filled with God's majestic presence. 
Robert, Robert Raymond points out that the angels there, though they are not sinful like Isaiah, yet you find them doing something in God's presence. Covering their faces. They have six wings. Each of them has six wings, as in our text tonight. But they're covering their faces. They're also covering their feet. We'll look at that in a moment. They're not sinful. And yet in God's presence, they cover their faces. The other covering their feet and then the others so that they can fly the third pair of wings. And this covering of their faces in God's presence, even though they're not sinful, shows that their responsive theme of God is that he is holy, holy, holy. This covering of their face before God, even not, not because they're sinners, simply because they're his creatures. Holy, holy, holy. He's so marvelously glorious and full of light. R.C. Sproul comments similarly, the seraphim are not sinful humans burdened with impure hearts, yet as angelic beings, they are still creatures. And even in their lofty status as consorts of the heavenly host, it is necessary for them to shield their eyes from a direct gaze on the face of God. They are fearfully and wonderfully made, equipped by their creator with a special pair of wings to cover their faces in his majestic presence. Now, of course, in Isaiah and in Revelation, these are visions, so they are communicating realities. Nonetheless, they're communicating the reality that God is holy, holy, holy. And so R.C. Sproul points out that in Exodus 33, when Moses asks if he can see God's glory, God shields his face. He lets him look at his backside. He won't let him look at God's face. And he shields Moses' face to protect him. And that glory shined on Moses' face. The people, he says, were terrified, and they shrank away from him in horror. Moses' face was too dazzling for them to look upon. So Moses put a veil over his face so that the people could approach him. This experience of terror was directed at the face of a man who had come so close to God that he was reflecting God's glory. If people are terrified by the sight of the reflected glory of the back parts of God, how can anyone stand to gaze directly into his face? So the angels shield their faces with their one set of wings. Holy, holy, holy. Further, Sproul points out that the angels having wings to cover their feet is... A similar communication, most likely. Why are they covering their feet? He points out that it would be similar to when Moses is at the burning bush. God's special presence in the bush. The bush is burning, but it does not consume. And God says, come here. But he says, what? Take off your sandals. For this is holy ground. There's, an ex there's just a sense of that he is the cr creature in God's presence and has to take his shoes off. And similarly, Sproul points out, it's interesting to think about that perhaps the other set of wings covering the feet of the angels expresses that same idea that though they are not sinful, they are creatures. And in God's presence, there's a way of just acknowledging you are God and we are not, though the angels are mighty and powerful. 
Sproul notes yet more that when the Bible emphasizes something in a way that we would highlight or that we might underline in print or as a certain someone in the church likes to put all in caps to express an important emphasis or we might put in italics or in quotations a way to really emphasize something as important. The way the Bible does that is by repetition. Often two words. Uh, I'll see that a lot in the Hebrew. You'll, you'll see it translated a little differently in a way of emphasizing, but in the Hebrew, it's the same word twice. It's a repetitive idea, but very rarely will you see that in Scripture three times. Very rarely. So when that happens, uh, it's like the Scripture is highlighting right here. Pay attention to this attribute of God. Don't miss this. This is an enormous thing God is revealing about himself to you in Isaiah and in our text tonight as it repeats it, holy, holy, holy is God. And in our text tonight, we learn that the angels in heaven who continually worship God before his throne ascribe to him his almighty, ever-present, thrice-holy majestic otherness. And the elders are there too, and they're responding the same way. They're all praising him and responding to this, but the angels express it. In heaven, the angels who continually worship God before his throne ascribe to him his almighty, ever-present, thrice-holy, majestic otherness. Give you as the main idea of our verse. That word holy, he's thrice-holy. What is holy? We have talked about it often. We've been to these scriptures before. It has the idea of being separate, set apart, separate. But it is more than ethical purity. There's an aspect of that in terms of how it applies to us and what the Lord does with us and says something about him. But holy, holy, holy is more than ethical purity. In fact, as Robert Raymond says, it is descriptive of God's intrinsic unapproachableness. His unapproachableness. You can think of how Esther has to have permission from the king. She comes in and bows, and she could be killed for approaching him without him summoning her. He gives the scepter of mercy to allow her in. The idea that you don't just approach the king unsummoned, right? You don't approach him that way. You wait to be summoned by him. Summoned by him. Uh, again, it is descriptive of God's intrinsic unapproachableness. That is, his majestic transcendence as the deity over the creature. That's, that's, again, Robert Raymond. So Louis Burkhoff says, it is not a primarily moral or religious quality, holy, holy, holy. As it was speaking of God, but its fundamental idea is that of a position or relationship existing between God and some person or thing. So Isaiah, in God's holiness, woe is me especially because he's aware of his sin and he's aware of his uncleanness. And yet, Isaiah, unlike most of the prophets, was a man of influence. He was a, a stately man by his position and experience. And yet, in God's presence, he's immediately struck. He's undone. The word is undone. And uh, that means like the, the clothes are, the threads have come out and unraveled. He's undone. Whatever you might wear, in his own stateliness before God is nothing. And of course, God's train, his, you know, his robe is just filling the whole throne room in this vision in Isaiah. And the idea, whether it's Isaiah or whether it's the angels, God is holy. He is worthy. We are not. 
You're just moved to bow before him and await his command and not speak until you're spoken to and called upon to speak. And yet God's holiness is inescapable. It's unapproachable, but his thrice holiness is inescapable, as R.C. Sproul points out. Not only, he says, not only does he penetrate every aspect of our lives, but he penetrates it in his majestic holiness. And even more, for the elect, I suggest that God's holiness is irresistible. It arrests us and frightens us and yet it captivates us and attracts us. He is awesome and we should be in awe of him and we should be adoring him. And that is what's going on in this chapter in Revelation. There really isn't a sense of fear about sin or uncleanness because this is heaven. We've been cleansed. These are people in God's presence having, their, uh, having themselves there as the elders cleansed by God in Christ. The angels not needing to be cleansed. You don't see that same fear with Isaiah, but you see that same respect and awe and adoration. Look at verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So holy, 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 think of lightning. Think of thunder all coming out of his throne. Think of the glory cloud at Mount Sinai. And they were afraid to approach it with thunder and lightning. You know, when we have a thunderous cloud approaching, we all take cover. We all understand this is nothing to mess with. This is someone to be reckoned with, to reckon with. And that's the imagery we see here of what it is that God is thrice holy. Look at verses 9 to 11. And when those beasts, now the beasts of course are the angels such as in Isaiah 6, same description, sits sex of wings and saying holy, holy, holy. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Isaiah says, when he talks about God being holy, 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 the whole earth is full of thy glory. Another way to say holy, holy, holy is to say the whole earth is full of thy glory. It's thunderous power. It's striking light. The idea of thrice holiness. In our text in Revelation, it says it like this. Another way of saying it is who was and is, and is to come. Another way of speaking of God's majestic transcendence, yet powerfully imminent in all points of time, and reflective of the Trinity. Very closely tied to God's kingly majesty is this idea of holy, holy, holy. So in Revelation 4 and in Isaiah 6, the whole setting, the place of this happening is the throne room of God. Now think of that. That's where we are longing to go in God's presence in heaven. This is what it is. His presence is holy, 
holy, holy. He is the king. He is majestic and mighty. He has a kingly, sovereign rule over all. So in Isaiah 6, 5, when he says, Woe is me, I'm undone. He says, My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. When Christ comes into this world as a babe, the heavens are broken open and it says the host, the angelic host, seeing glory, glory, right? And this is an army, remember, the angels are powerful. This is armies, right? Christ says near the crucifixion to a man who's supposed to think he has power over him, you only have it because my father gave it to you. I could call down legions of angels right now and wipe you all out. I see the king, the Lord of hosts. You see, God is to be worshipped and served at the pleasure of his kingly will. Verse 11. For thy pleasure all things are created. You see, that's the idea of Isaiah. Though he is going to be redeemed, he's going to be atoned for his sins and made clean uh, from the altar. And even the angels with no sin, there's that sense of that creatureliness. He's made all things, all things for his own will, for his own power and glory. We bow our knee and we say, yes, sir. We serve at the pleasure of the king and of his will. Thus, this again is a throne room vision. Now, when I lectured through the book of Revelation, let me highlight, I lectured, I did not preach, but I lectured through the Revelation, and you can go to our sermon audio page if you want to listen through all of that, much to do with eschatology and end times theology. But again, the main theme of it is Jesus wins. It's not about the Antichrist, it's about Christ the King. But I had a lecture on chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and the, the name of this lecture, of the context of verse, was have a throne room worldview, with the idea to see God's work behind all human history, including these last days leading to the last day. Have a throne room worldview. We tend to wring our hands and cower before the world and get afraid, wonder what's happening with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, and we're afraid and we're worried and we're nervous. And what we have to recognize is whatever it looks like with Satan ruling as the prince of this world, the God of this world, Christ has conquered him on the cross. Christ has already conquered death. And when he comes back, he's going to throw the, the devil into the lake of fire. And chapter 20 of Revelation, he's already bound him. He doesn't have the same influence he used to have as the church now advances throughout the world that used to be utterly dark and under the control of Satan. And so the the message is, Jesus is king. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that is being worked out behind the scenes. God is weaving out his providential picture behind the scenes. We kind of see the mess of it on the one side, but the beautiful picture is being shown to us in the Revelation. And it is Christ is king. Christ is on his throne. He is holy, 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 ruling over it all. From that lecture, let me share a few things mostly related to our verse tonight. First of all, the eyes looking at the throne and away from the throne express universal watchfulness. Morris points that out. 
The beasts or the angels will play an important role in the execution of God's decrees in the chapters that are to come next in Revelation. They do God's bidding through the universe, including within all human history on behalf of God's elect. And that brings up Psalm 103.20 and Hebrews 1.14. The angels are God's ministering spirits on behalf of his people, on behalf of his church, working on his will. The four beasts, or the angels, represent God's overall creation, the four ends of the earth, under God's rule, seen in the noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest inanimate nature. Morris shares that as well. Remember Genesis 3.29, the cherubim protect God's holy things. Exodus 25.20. And though they're not covering their faces, I think it's appropriate to bring up in the Holy of Holies the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and what's on top of it, where it is said that God's presence is between the cherubim, the angels, their wings stretched out as they look at one another. They're doing the will of God. They're executing his decrees. It can't be anything else but what God has decreed from his throne in heaven. Again, look at verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. There's no part of anything going on in world history that isn't part of his story. That isn't completely under his control and his edict. And this is the kind of thing that should give us encouragement, but it should also give us such a sense of his awesomeness. God is sitting on the throne and a rainbow is surrounding it. Verses 2 to 3, hearkening back to the promises in the scriptures. The elders are in this throne room scene, surrounding, bowing, worshiping, casting their crowns to him. That were theirs, verses 4 and 10 to 11. Lightning and thunder we saw proceeds from his throne, verse 5. Lamps are burning before it, verse 5. The sea of crystal is before it, verse 6. The four beasts we're reading of, the angels, are in the midst of it all, surrounding it, verse 6. And they are constantly attending to the praise of God. Our, our verse tonight, verse 8. And they give perpetual glory and thanks to him on his throne, verse 9. I mean, they're making sure that day and night, God is constantly receiving his glory. He's receiving the praise of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. Day and night, it never stops in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as Isaiah says, as they say in Isaiah, the whole earth is full of his glory. The Greek in verse 11, which says, for thy pleasure, it literally is through thy will. Through thy will, all things are created and were created. As Jesus prays and teaches us to pray, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You could summarize it all like this. The fifth of the five solas. Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory.
And that does bring us again to thinking when we have gone to this study in the Shorter Catechism number four, that it, really all of the attributes could be summed up in glory. But you might make the case that just as much his holiness, because the two are said essentially as synonyms. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And then in verse 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. Very much related. I believe I shared this with you before, but it bears repeating. Westminster Confession, chapter 2, section 1. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Thus we need Christ the Holy One to make us holy to approach this thrice holy God. But uh, I want to encourage you, if you want to spend more time thinking about that, you can go to our membership class, also on Sermon Audio, and go to chapter 2 and look at God and the Holy Trinity. And, you know, we get into a lot more of those details But what I and explaining them. But what I want to highlight tonight is that this one only living true God is most Holy, most holy. The Westminster Larger Catechism, number seven, parallel to number four of the Shorter Catechism, but adding a little more, similarly says, God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, Everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. But again, notice, most holy. And that's what we're giving our attention to tonight with Revelation 4, verse 8, and Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. Again, almost nowhere in Scripture do we see anything repeated three times. The only attribute of God repeated three times in a row, and in two different places, Isaiah 6 and here in Revelation 4, he wants to bring to your attention his incredible, glorious holiness. You know, I think that should affect how we plan on going to heaven and what we'll be doing there as we see it in the Revelation. Heaven isn't so much about 
getting a get out of hell free card. It's not even about going and enjoying my favorite foods, playing my favorite sports. It's not even about enjoying the earth, although I look forward to that. I, I often talk about what, how amazing it'll be to have eternity to enjoy the earth and in its glorified state. But what you need to be prepared for, beloved, and it's why you need to be especially coming to corporate worship, heaven is worshiping God. Heaven is magnifying God, glorifying him, basking in his holy glory and praising him for it and loving it. Taking awe in him and adoring him for it. Prepare for that and and get excited about that. Sin and Satan are keeping you from the full experience of that. That one day you'll be able to enjoy Isaiah 57, verse 15, so later on in Isaiah, says that God's name is holy. His name is holy. Now, he has many names we've looked at, but one of his names, it simply is holy. Or you could say all of his names are holy. I also have preached on Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. I've taught on Revelation 4. I've given you some some notes from that earlier study. I've preached on Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, back in the Westminster Larger Catechism series. You can go back there to listen to more on this as as it's expressed in Isaiah directly. But let me share with you two things. The point of the text, verses 1 to 8 of Isaiah 6. God's holiness in his heavenly temple puts angels, men, and earth in their proper place. That's essentially what's been told to us, explained to us earlier. And the message for you there, the sermon point was this, worship the triune God with fear, awe, and thankfulness. So we're told to do in Hebrews 12. Let this study of God's holiness, his holy, holy, holy being, help you better appreciate why Jesus teaches us to open our prayers with our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. As R.C. Sproul explains, we should be praying that God's name be hallowed, that God be regarded as holy. There is a kind of sequence within the prayer. God's kingdom will never come where his name is not considered holy. It is foolish to look for the kingdom anywhere. God is not revered. You you might reverse that and say it would be not likely to see many coming to a place where God's name is revered as holy when they are not interested in that. All that said, there is also a sense of holy related to God's purity of any stain of sin, completely perfect, pure, clean. That's why Isaiah in his sin responds to God's holiness, woe is me, I'm unclean among people of unclean lips. And so he's given atonement. The hot coal comes from the altar. Christ comes and cleanses us from God's altar in heaven. But having been made holy by Jesus, we're called to live holy. There's an ethical aspect as well. Leviticus 11, 44 to 45. In uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 to 16, it says to us, Old and New Testament, God says to you, Be ye holy. 
for I am holy. Now, naturally, we can't be infinitely, eternally, unchangeably holy. We're not holy in the same otherness as God's holiness, but in that sense of being set apart by him from this world in the kingdom of heaven at its citizens that ought to look like that. There ought to be a nobility, not our own nobility, but the nobility of God and Christ, the King of Kings, in the way we live in this world. We ought to be reflecting a sense of reverence for God's holiness as the angels do in his very presence, for he He is everywhere. He is everywhere. He is inescapable again in his, especially his holiness. God has separated you out of the world to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And as you approach this thrice holy God through Christ, the Holy One of Psalm 16, the Holy Child of Luke 149, by His Holy Spirit within you, appreciate Habakkuk 1.13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. And 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So at least you could say if God were to shield his face, it's from sin. It's from this world of sin and stained impurity and darkness and evil. Because he's pure holy light. Wants nothing to do with that. And similarly, you as citizens of the kingdom of heaven who have been made holy in Christ who are to reflect his pure holiness as you grow in sanctification, you, as you have your hands in a sense covering your face, just marveling over God's holiness, also should have your hands covering your face, shielding it away from the dirtiness and the wickedness and the unholiness of this world. If you are marveling in his holiness, his holy, holy holy glory that will fill this earth in a whole new exalted way at his second coming. When the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and it is one nation under God around the entire earth and everyone is before his throne as it were crying out holy, 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 living out holy, holy, holy day and night. Respond to his holiness, his thrice holiness, with Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Notice again, holiness and glory almost synonyms. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Oh, beloved, I hope we leave here tonight giving thanks as we remember our thrice holy God and sing unto him. Psalm 96, verse 9. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. 
Psalm 99 verse 3. Let them praise thy great and terrible name for it is holy. Psalm 97 verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord ye righteous and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. There it is again. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness and how Christ has made you holy and allowed you into this glorious holiness forever. I think if the church and Christians were to better reflect and live out in worship, in church life, in living for Christ, that God is holy, holy, holy. And how we walk in this world for and with him, I think it would make a bigger impression. And we'd see more conversions. We don't represent God like this. I fear to say often, even in Reformed churches too many times, we don't reflect him like this. We don't revere him and speak of him like this. And so nobody takes him seriously. May we take him seriously and be impressed by this about him and about King Jesus. Now, here's something really special to remember. We're in Revelation, which is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is seen in a glorious picture of him as the Ancient of Days in chapter 1. It's all showing that Jesus is the victorious king. But again, there's this natural connection to Isaiah 6. In John chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, it says that Isaiah is there speaking of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. That glorious, holy, holy, holy of God, John says Isaiah is seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. If you look up any scriptures later, look up John 12, verses 40 and 41. This Jesus, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. First Timothy six fifteen and 16, speaking of God and reflecting Christ. Just as God's presence in the burning bush made it holy ground, so Emmanuel, Christ, God with us, the light of the world makes you holy and gives you the Holy Spirit and will see to your glorification in glory land where you will join in the chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory, and you will enjoy that in its full and final consummation on the last great day. It won't be hidden anymore. It'll be fully manifested, and you will get to be part of enjoying that forever. Be in awe 
of God who is holy, holy, holy. Adore God for being holy, holy, holy. For God is gloriously holy. And that is the message for you this evening. God is gloriously holy. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray to you, the triune God, and we think of Christ who has revealed this all to us and of himself. We simply pray to you in rejoicing and wonder and adoration and admiration, fear and worship. Holy, holy, holy art thou, Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of thy glory. Holy, holy, holy art thou, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we pray in the Spirit as your bride. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen and amen.